Welcome. You're listening to The Drive Podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Orlando. In our current series, we are walking through the letter of Philippians as the Apostle Paul writes to encourage the people of Philippi to live out their faith with joy and in unity. Let's listen in and see what God has in store for us. Amen. Thank you guys so much. And you guys, thank you. I know it's the end of a long day. We turn the lights down. You want to kind of crash. Uh, But I'm grateful for worship. I'm grateful for you guys joining in with us. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, We love the scriptures here. Um, Here at the drive and here at First Baptist Orlando, we stand on the word of God as authoritative. Uh, We believe that God in his sovereign care has preserved his word from when he first breathed it through 52 different authors some 4,000 plus years ago and that it is profitable for us. And so we go to painstaking scrutiny as we try our best to interpret it so that when we open it, we can be confident that we're hearing from God. And as I say often, you have permission to spit out the bones and keep the meat of what I'm saying. I want you to hear from Jesus. I want you to hear from the Holy Spirit. He is the only authorized teacher in the room. So for the last two months, we've been walking through the book of Philippians. I'm, I'm quite proud of us. Last week, uh, we, we went through the, the, the greatest amount of verses that we have since I got here back in April. It, it's a whopping 16 verses, but that's, that's, that's good news. Uh, I'll definitely uh, scale back tonight. We may get through three tonight. But we finally get to the third chapter. So we are officially halfway through the book of Philippians. We're in chapter three. Last week, Paul kind of gave us a personal aside of these two guys that he had been discipling, Timothy and Epaphroditus. It was kind of boring at first glance. It's like, really, dude? Are you just filling space here? But, but the closer we look at the passage, the more clearly we see that Paul was lifting up these two guys as examples of what the poured out life looks like. Because remember, the story of Philippians isn't just the story of Jesus. It's the story of the Jesus who indwelt the Apostle Paul, the story of the Jesus who indwelt Timothy and Epaphroditus, the same Jesus who indwells us. And so we get to find, finally to chapter three, and it's interesting, he opens the, the, the chapter with the word finally, but this is one of those preacher finalies, you know? Like, don't ever listen to a preacher when they say, all right, in closing, or let me go ahead and get to my last point and wrap this up. That dude is going to invariably go for another 15 minutes, right? This is one of those preacher finalies. He says, finally, and then he goes on for two whole chapters. But this, this finally is a conclusion of sorts, a conclusion that Paul wants to make really clear as he begins heading into this new thought in chapter 3. And so in essence, he says, finally. Let's, let's once and for all put this, this, this particular way of thinking to rest. Let's, let's finally detach ourselves from this troublesome idea that we can find joy and significance and contentment in Jesus plus anything. Paul, Paul pulls out the heresy hammer here and he's about to go to war against Judaizers, these Jewish men who traveled around following Paul everywhere, barking out this false gospel that it was Jesus plus something else for salvation. Jesus plus strict adherence to the Mosaic law. Jesus plus the the Jewish ritual rite of circumcision. And so Paul says, finally, finally, let's, let's put this thinking 
to death, let's finally get on the same page that Christ plus anything is a false gospel that robs us of everything that God means for us to experience in Jesus Christ. We get to verse two and we're not there yet. Don't worry, we're gonna hang out on one for a long time. But we get to verse two and Paul is gonna go off on these unsavory characters, these these guys, these Judaizers, because they were the ones running around trying to get Gentiles to live like Jews. If you're familiar with how the early church was birthed in Acts chapter 15, there's something called the Jerusalem Council. It's a really fascinating passage of scripture because the church in Jerusalem sat down with Paul and other leaders and some of these Judaizers and they went to war and they decided what does it mean for a Gentile, those who aren't Jewish, what does it mean for them to be saved? What does it mean for them to be a Christian? It's real interesting what they came up with. And as a response to that, those declarations, that's what launched Paul on his second missionary journey to go and tell everybody about that. But Paul makes it clear here in these first opening verses of chapter 3, we're going to hang out, that each and every one of us is on a pursuit to find joy. And while there may be only one genuine source for joy, there are many counterfeit voices out there offering something different. And so... Chapter three, verse one, let's dive in. Finally, Paul says, finally, my brethren, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard to you. Paul isn't giving advice here. It doesn't sound like advice. Actually, it sounds very much like a command, right? This is an imperative. He says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, which means we need a working definition of rejoice. So what does rejoice mean? Generally speaking, don't give me the church answer. What does it mean to rejoice? To praise? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. To celebrate, to give thanks. Yeah, yeah, to, to, to take great delight in something or to, to overflow with joy. Would you say that it's something that's visible and demonstrative? I think so, I think so. Maybe even an attitude or, or, or a perspective change, but it's definitely something that has to do with joyfulness, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, with praise. And it's definitely a command here. And it's certainly not the first time that Paul has admonished believers to rejoice. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, the verse is just two words long, huge implications. He says, rejoice always, not sometimes, not when things are going good, rejoice always. It's ludicrous, right? Who in the world is going to rejoice always, especially when things aren't going well, when when your plans are kind of falling apart, and yet the command here is to rejoice always. Who does that? The person who understands that they are always in Christ, in the Lord before they're ever anywhere else. Like this is a throwback to when we first started the book of Philippians. Remember chapter one, verse one, the very first verse. This is what Paul says in one, one, Paul and Timothy bond servants of Christ Jesus to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Saints in Christ at Philippi. We, those of us who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, we are in Christ at the drive, right? We are in Christ at First Baptist Orlando. Some of you are in Christ at a dead end job, 
at the end of your rope, at a place of discontentment. And yet Paul reminds us here that we are always in Christ, in the Lord before we are ever anywhere else. It's why Paul says, finally, I need you to rejoice in the Lord, which is always the greater reality, isn't it? It really is. When, when we find ourselves in a situation, a circumstance that we just can't handle. I mean, look at Paul. Where is he? He's in prison, right? He's under house arrest in Rome. He is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We've gone over this over and over and over again. Paul doesn't know if he's going to get out of prison or not. And yet he's rejoicing over and over and over again. He uses the word joy or joyfulness or rejoice 18, 19 times in this letter. Why? Because Paul understands rejoicing is not dependent upon our circumstances. We're in Christ before we're ever in a circumstance that we, or we may or may not be able to handle. I'm glad to see you, Ashley. You're in Christ, brother. Amen. So it's more though, it's more than just acknowledging. To be able to rejoice in the Lord is more than just acknowledging that we're in Christ. Because Paul is saying, I want you to rejoice in, in Christ. Make him your joy. Jesus Christ himself, make him your joy. Because if we really think about it, he is the very source and the very supply of everything that is joyful. Why is that the case? Why is Jesus really our joy? Yes, ma'am. Because we can trust him, absolutely. And what can we trust him for? Yeah, yeah. All the things that are right and good and true and holy and praiseworthy. Philippians 4, 8, we're getting there. Think of these things, he says, whatever is right and true and noteworthy and of good repute. Jesus is our source of everything that is joyful. He is the reason that we have been reconciled with our holy creator God. He is the one that brings us into a relationship with God and so we can find meaning and significance and purpose in a world that is shallow and empty. Jesus is the one who gives us a purpose and a call on our lives. And so Jesus is the very source of joy. And so when Paul says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord, we're talking about learning to tap into that holy gladness that comes from knowing that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter eight. Guys, don't make your achievements or your successes in the marketplace your joy. Don't make your relationships your joy. Don't place your joy in anything that death can steal from you. Our joy must be in the uncreated God who made us with purpose and significance and made us in his image. Colossians 1, we are created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. So this, this of course, begs the question, what are you rejoicing in? Better yet, where are you trying to find your joy? Because if it's in anything other than Jesus Christ, it cannot bear the burden of that weight. The uncreated God is the only one who has the strength of shoulders to bear your joy because he is joy. 
And I think most of us in this room have tried to drink from wells that are cracked for far too long. We know there's no joy in those things. And yet, like a dog returns to his vomit, chapter 3, later on, we continue to run back to these empty wells and cisterns thinking that we can find joy there. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Shall we who are dead to sin still live in it? May it never be. It's no longer a home to us, and yet we live there for so long, we continue running back thinking that we can find life and joy in the flesh. That's a whole nother sermon. Let me stop. Now, you would think this goes without saying, but common sense isn't really common these days. You can't rejoice in the Lord if you're not in the Lord, right? We, we call the gospel good news because it is the good news because it is the response of God to the bad news. And the bad news is that none of us showed up on this planet earth in the Lord. We all showed up in Adam, right? You trace your, your family line, your lineage back far enough, you're going to find yourself in the posterity of our, our charming first parents, Adam and Eve, right? And because Adam and Eve chose to rebel and disobey God's one boundary in their created world, sin entered into the human story. And from generation to generation, every single baby that ever showed up on this earth showed up dead, dead in their sins and trespasses, spiritually cut off from the life of God. We showed up so jacked up that God couldn't help us. He had to crucify us. That's what Romans 6 tells us. Romans 6 tells us that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, plural, the fruit of our sin, a nature that is inherently rebellious and bent towards independence. And so by the grace of God, Jesus Christ 2,000 plus years ago died on a cross and God placed our sinful, helpless, selfish, unrehabilitative life in Christ on the cross and we died with Christ and we were raised to walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6 verse 8. God didn't, God didn't fix your old sinful life. He crucified it and he raised you to walk in newness of life. What life? The life of Christ. That's what I've been saying since I got here in April. You've been raised to walk in new life. The very life of Christ has come and taken per- permanent residence inside of you. And now there's this war that wasn't there before. Now you have something called indwelling sin in your members. I don't even know what that means, but what I do mean, what I do know is that there is a battle inside of you between the spirit of God who calls you home and indwelling sin and is constantly fighting, constantly wanting to get the upper hand. And we have been called now to walk in the spirit and to not gratify the desires of the flesh. We didn't have a choice before Jesus. Now we do. That's a whole nother sermon too. Let me stick to the notes. We can't rejoice in the Lord if we're not in the Lord. And so once we come to faith in Christ and we confess and we repent, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, that leads to a change of behavior. And when we repent and we confess of our sins, man, God says that he transfers us, Colossians 1, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of Jesus. We get out of Adam and we get placed in Christ. And now that is the place where we learn to rejoice always and in all things. And so Paul is laying down a foundation for us here in this first verse because he's about to show some unsavory characters that are trying to get us to rejoice in other places, trying to get us to place our joy and our confidence in our flesh and in our achievements and in our performance to somehow create something that we can hand to God. And it's an empty gospel. It's a false gospel. That's why in 
verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. These Judaizers were dogs because they were barking false doctrine. Their bite was toxic. And if they sunk their teeth into you, the disease of a works-based righteousness would wreak havoc. And you would continually think that you had to try to do something to get into God's good graces. Do you know that the Christian gospel is the only gospel that says you don't do anything to get to God. God came to you because you can't reach him. That's the beauty of the Christian gospel. God in flesh, the son, Jesus Christ, who is God, came and lived that perfect life that none of us could live. And he died the death all of us deserved. And then he offers that life to us by grace. And every other major religion you look at shows you the steps to reach divinity, to achieve nirvana, to climb the ladders, to be one with God. And the Christian gospel says, you can't get here. So I came to you. That's good news. And these dogs, they barked out false doctrine. They were also dogs because they followed Paul everywhere he went. Acts 13 and 14, first missionary journey. As soon as they started hearing the gospel of grace that Paul was teaching, he was in Pisidian Antioch and they heard what he was saying. And man, they started just, started a riot in the city and they chased him out of town. They found out he was in Iconium and they chased him out of there. They found out he was in Lystra. They chased him. They dragged him out of the city gates and they stoned him and they left him for dead. Paul was raw. Dude got up and went back into town and was preaching the gospel again before he went to Derby. Second missionary journey, same thing. He preached the gospel in Thessalonica and the Jews heard about it and they started riots in the city. They heard he went to Berea. They followed him to Berea. These dogs, they chased his heels and they barked out false doctrine. He also calls them beware of the evil workers. Why were they evil workers? Because they were doing the works of the evil one. It is evil to suggest to someone that your performance is what gets you in good with God. And we have so many false religions out there telling people that it is upon you to get yourself into a place where God can accept you. It's evil. And it's in direct opposition to the gospel of grace that says Jesus died for you. And that is a gift of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works unless any man can boast. This must have been the same thought that he had when he was writing that in Ephesians. You do know that Paul wrote Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, all in this same three-year period when he was in jail. Call them the prison epistles. They're very similar if you lay them on top of each other. Because what he says after this, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers. And the last warning is interesting. He says, beware of the false circumcision. This is cool. In the Greek word, it's, it's, it's literally mutilators. Paul is parodying their, their insistence on circumcision by sarcastically calling it mutilation. Paul takes it a step further in Galatians. If you ever read Galatians, Paul is going to war against the false gospel of Jesus plus and in Galatians, he goes so far to say, I wish you guys would just go ahead and emasculate yourselves. Yeah, that's what he says. And Paul is saying, for those who had lost the significance of circumcision and insisted on it as a right, as a work to somehow get to God's love, it was nothing more than a mutilation of the flesh. 
And so Paul is pointing out these guys were trusting in a physical operation instead of God's gracious work of salvation. And there were Gentiles up and down the street accepting this pressure to be circumcised in order to somehow gain God's blessing. And Paul's like, when you do that, you're acting like the same pagans who cut themselves to try to appease their gods. Paul is jealously guarding against the truth of the gospel here. And he's going to war against error. It's the same reason we do too. Jesus said, listen, there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And there are false gospels and false teachers all around. It's why it's important that we know what we believe. It's why we stand on doctrine. It's why there was council after council after council in the first and second and third century as the church was birthed. Because if the enemy can't beat you, he joins you and begins to distort the truth of the gospel. And when we fail to ground our joy in Christ and him alone, listen to me, we all become susceptible to these fallen voices that are offering other ways to get right with God. And so Paul says, no, 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 you don't get it. Listen, verse three, you, we, we are the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's not talking about cutting flesh here, guys. He's talking about a changed and transformed heart. And Paul is saying for those who trust in Christ, they are the true people of God. They have received the true circumcision of the heart. The only circumcision that really matters when it comes to being known by God. Now, now surely Paul understood that this question was going to be asked by his hearers. Well, what does it mean for us to be the true circumcision? How can we know? We don't want to be fooled, Paul. You're telling us that these guys are preaching a lie and false gospel. How can we know if we're the true circumcision? And Paul responds, three distinguishing marks in this verse of what the true people of God look like. Here's how we know. Verse three, we worship in the spirit of God. What do you think that means to worship in the spirit of God? Come on, I know there's one or two charismatics out there. <laughs> no one wants to say it, I know. I think, it, I, I, I don't know. I, I read an article that said, as a preacher, you shouldn't say I think so much because y'all really don't care what I think. You want to hear the word of God. But I think what it means is that true, genuine believers understand and know that God doesn't receive anything that is not first birthed out of his spirit being at work in and through us. You know, I think of John chapter four when Jesus met the woman at the well and you you know the story, she's there to get a drink of water and Jesus is like, you don't want that water, you want the water I have, you'll never thirst again. And she's like, well, let me get some. And he's like, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a man. He's like, yeah, you do. You had five and you're sleeping with one now that's not your husband. And she flips the script and she changes the story and she's like, let's talk theology. Where do you worship? And God said, Or Jesus said, God is looking for those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And anything that we try to bring to God that is not first birthed in and through the spirit, it's an offering of the flesh. True believers understand this, that both our worship, our service to God, it's a work of the spirit who is at work in and through us. And so we worship in the spirit of God. Number two, they glory in Christ Jesus. 
This is interesting. I've taught on the, that word glory before, and it's not the usual word glory, doxa, where it talks about weight and, and, and heaviness and, and impressiveness. But this word glory here, it means to express an unusually high degree of confidence in something or someone. Literally, it means to boast. Paul says, we boast in Christ Jesus. We glory in him. Now, I'm sure that if all of us threw all of our accomplishments on the table tonight, we would have a lot to boast about. I'm sure we have done a lot of great and awesome things in our life. I'm sure we could pile up the trophies from when we were younger kids and playing sports and all that kind of stuff. But instead, instead of us pulling out all of those successes and piling them on the table and pulling up our Instagram feeds because that's where, you know, we're all, we all have it all together and we put all the nice stuff on there, you know. Instead, we boast in Jesus. If we're going to boast in anything, we want to boast in Christ, the one who has made a place for us in his presence. Let me step on your toes. Listen, if, if you claim to be a Christian, you don't make much of Jesus. It makes me kind of question your claim. Because people that belong to Christ are going to make much of Christ. And they're going to boast in him. And they're going to talk about him. And they're going to talk about what he's done in their lives because their lives have been flipped upside down by Jesus. And so those who are true circumcision, those are the true circumcision. Man, we worship in the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And finally, we put no confidence in the flesh. What is flesh, somebody? Define flesh for me. What do you think? Yes, ma'am. Sin. Yeah, that's, that, that's an easy one. Our own desires. Absolutely. Absolutely. Flesh. Flesh is the way we get our knees met apart from Christ. Our desires. It's how we lived our lives apart from Jesus Christ. It's the ways we got our needs met apart from Christ. It's anything apart from Christ on which we base our hope of salvation as well. And if anybody ever gets the gospel, if they understand the gospel, it's because they understand there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It is only in trusting Christ and in Christ alone. And so flesh here, it refers to what man is outside of Christ. And even those of us who have confessed Christ, we still can walk in the flesh. Right? Can't we? It's what we're called to do. We're called to not walk in the flesh, but to walk in the spirit. Put to death the deeds of flesh, Romans chapter 8 says. And men, listen to me. Guys, you can't put to death the deeds of sexual sin alone. Let me just be blunt. If you're not walking in accountability with other guys, you will continue to struggle sexually in sin. And you will carry it into your marriage. Marriage does not fix it. It makes it worse. I don't mean like worse, like, I mean it doesn't go away. That's for somebody out there. We have nothing to boast about but grace. Guys, there is nothing to read, no way that we can read this book to figure out some formula to put into motion through self-effort to build something that will impress God, that God will ever approve of. And yet all of us have our confidence somewhere. My hope is that our confidence would be in Jesus Christ and him alone. The Christian, they place their confidence in Christ. That's why Christians can boast in Jesus. 
It's why they can rejoice in the Lord. But the human heart is prone to trust in other things instead of Christ for salvation. Where's your confidence tonight? Where's your hope? It's why we constantly need to preach the gospel to ourselves and have our friends preaching the gospel to us because our hearts are prone to wander and we quickly, quickly create idols in our lives that we chase after and we place our trust in them. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We would love to see you on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. in the Student Center at First Baptist Orlando. You can check us out on Facebook. It is the easiest way to get in touch with us and find out what is going on in our ministry.